welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from high above Bryant Park in the Fashion District of New York. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and menswear enthusiast. For this episode, I'm joined by menswear designer and friend and client, Willie Chavarria. Fresh off his New York Fashion Week men's runway show and deep within the spring-summer 2019 selling season. So, Willie, given how busy you must be during the selling season, I really appreciate you coming in. Oh, it's a pleasure. I always love seeing you, Douglas. Thank you for having me. So, listen, um, right off the bat, you've self-described yourself as someone who is exploring the limitless potentials of creative realization through fashion design. Hmm. Unpack that for us, please. Okay. All right. All right. That's a pretty big statement, I said, I guess. But, you know, I would say that as a designer or as a creative, fashion is just one of the components of the big picture. So um, I look at fashion as something that extends beyond just apparel. And especially in today's day and age, people are buying so much more than just the clothing. So the potential for me is is it extends so much beyond just uh, what we wear and how we wear it. It's uh, the story behind it and uh, the effect it has on others. So I, I think that in the fashion world, it's a really exciting territory to uh, extend far beyond um, our conceived potential. Oh, lovely. All right. Well, listen, I'll hit you with another somewhat metaphysical one. Um, you know, you talk about fashion, but you talk about elements of style. Could you comment on, at least from your perspective, the difference between style and fashion? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really, I, I think I love style and personal style more than actual fashion because fashion to me is um, the garments themselves. And I mean, the fashion industry is the selling of the garment. And I think that has evolved into something beyond the garments themselves. It is um, the selling of style. So what we're drawn to now when we see a pair of shoes or a jacket or a bag is not necessarily what that particular item looks like. It's the story that item tells. So a person's style is completely uh, signature to them. You know, a, a person can have on the most um, unappealing fashion and look fantastic because of their style. You, for example. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's, um, I mean, the, one of the classic examples for me is, is workwear. Right. Like, uh, you know, a guy getting off work at, you know, Home Depot wearing a Dickies shirt and some loose-fitting Dickies trousers can look amazing. He can look completely completely beautiful in style and um you know maybe his fashion isn't uh exactly something you'd see at Bergdorf's and what is that that is how he's putting it together or how he looks in it you know his choice of what size you know polo shirt to wear or whether to tuck it in or tuck it half in or throw a bandana around his neck what is it for you yeah communicates style I, I I think that 
the personal style is being completely true to oneself. So if you are trying to dress like something you aren't or project something that you really are not, um, it's never going to come across as being uh, true style. So it's never going to come off. It's it won't ever come across as being sincere, and I think that's where we see a lot of misses in style. Mm-hmm. Um, personal style always looks the best when a person is describing themselves or presenting themselves in their current state um, to the best possible potential. So they're they're showing themselves as who they truly are at their best. So if a guy's working at Home Depot and that's who he is in that moment, and you know he's presenting himself with pride and dignity in his state, he actually looks really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, I um, just to talk about me for a moment. Of course, um, of course. You know, as an attorney, uh, I think that that my uniform, at least. To, to match the expectations of, of clients or potential clients is largely tailored clothing, which is really fortunate because tailored clothing historically is made to, to hide a lot of male flaws oh, yeah. and enhance you know, what you have that's worth enhancing. How do you feel about the casualization of certain professions. And by that, I mean not just lawyers, but you know anyone who is a service professional that traditionally think our fathers, our grandfathers, um, expected to be in a suit and tie. Mm-hmm. And today, one might find dressed even more casually than that guy at Home Depot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that one of, one of the key elements to style is being relevant to the times being relevant to your environment. So it doesn't mean being lazy. So I would, I would kind of uh, parallel what you're talking about with maybe when you go to the opera or the theater now, everyone looks pretty terrible. And it's not because of the time so much as, you know, I just think a lot of people are lazy. Yeah. And, you know, it looks like crap. So when I go to the theater, I still get dressed up and I'm one of the few people there. I kind of look like an oddball because people are, you know, wearing shorts and flip-flops. And I think that's, you know, I think it just looks terrible. But for a man in your field um, with suits and tailored clothing, I, I still think that there is a way to evolve the traditional kind of looks into what is comfortable and what is relevant, but still what is flattering and looks great. Mm-hmm. I mean, a suit in many ways is kind of the, the woman's equivalent of like, you know, a girdle and a push-up bra, you know, because it's really, you, you have the ability to kind of uh, create a silhouette that exudes confidence, power, and, um, you know, those are things that you want to reflect your position in, in life and in your career. So those are things that you still ultimately want to maintain. You don't want to lose sight of that. And I think the guys that do lose sight of that are, um, you know, they're being a bit sloppy. And, you know, it it translates into sloppy whether or not, you know, they realize it. So you've got a great degree of experience with multiple large brands. Um, You are now and have been for the past three years. Yeah. Also at the helm of your eponymous line. 
we'll get back to all of that, but I'd be interested to hear about your design process and you know the 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 kernels of thought that go into the initial construction of a line, whether those are related to places you love, things you love, just an inspiration that came out of reading a novel or seeing a movie. What's that process and how does it play out? Yeah, that's a, that, uh, that's a great question because um, I think my process is very different than the processes a lot of the corporate companies have. So after leaving companies like Ralph Lauren and American Eagle and getting fantastic experience and you know learning about process on the big scale, when I decided to do my own brand, I really wanted to be committed to um, this, this sincerity in design, more so than um, chasing trend and chasing color trend and you know this, this sort of thing, which I'm, I'm very excited to say uh, has been effective with my brand. It's, it's a new thing for me, and, it, and it's great to see that it's resonated with customers. But with uh, my design process always starts with... Um, a feeling, a feeling that's in the world. And my clothing in particular, my designs kind of reflect what's already out there. So I like to take the feelings that are in the world and then translate them into apparel and give them back to the world to kind of be a reflection of ourselves. So um, each season I design with... uh, Usually it's something that's going on in politics. Usually it's something that I, I draw on um, maybe from my past or, or something that's a, an emotional type of thing. And that's always the start. So I'll, I'll begin with uh, tear sheets and songs and you know visuals that really reflect something in particular. So this last season was very much about immigration mm-hmm. and um, the influence of immigrants in different parts of the world and in the United States. And um, it starts with that, and then my team and I kind of uh, use these ideas and these thoughts and our, and our moral beliefs about the situation and build off of that. So as, a, as I design, I'm usually uh, looking at what people were wearing during certain periods or uh, during certain political movements. There's a saying in Latin America, sano sanote puro machote, which has always struck me and and roughly is equivalent to pure sanity and and pure machismo. In your designs, there is a high degree of masculinity that comes through. And we're certainly in a design moment where there's a lot of gender fluidity that you see out there and um, and brands that are um, selling off of that. Is that deliberate on your part? Yeah, actually, that's a great question. It, It truly is deliberate in that um, I'm aware of it. But I, I will say, of course, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of all of the um, advancements that have been made in the gay community and the trans community. And even in fashion, I think it's really cool that we're seeing so much of that gender fluid stuff happening. Um, at the same time, for my collection, I really do love to observe this almost traditional idea of masculinity because there are a lot of very masculine guys out there 
that are gay friendly and are gender fluid friendly. And um, just because you're gay friendly or gender fluid friendly doesn't mean that you have to look like that. You don't have to look the part of somebody else. Mm -hmm. So um, my position is like, okay, yeah, all these guys look great and they look like what, um, you know, they look like they work at Home Depot type of thing. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, maybe they're gay themselves or, you know, maybe they're just open-minded. And I think that's a, that's a cool aspect that doesn't always get recognized. Interesting. You know, one of my, my personal presentation ethos, or one of the laws of style, if you happen to read the book, is always appearing capable and elegant. And I think in your designs, the capability aspect of that mandate is absolutely present. Thank you. Maybe speak to the elegant side of it. Where in your design does elegance come through, if, if at all? And, you know, my, my ethos may not be yours. So. Yeah, yeah, no, actually elegance is a, is a very important part of my presentation and my design. And um, elegance is a, you know, it's a strong word. It's a, it can have a lot of different meanings. And I talk about this with uh, some close fashion friends of mine often. And um, in there, there seems to be in the world today a loss of elegance. And that's, to me, it's kind of a loss of um, presenting ourselves in a dignified and easy-to-understand manner. And um, I make that a point to, in all of my fashion, to be extremely um, relatable and extremely dignified. And to me, that is the, the message of elegance. Um, there's a simplicity in it, and there is a uh, comfort level in it. And to me, elegance is, it's never snobby, it's never flashy, it's never garish. Elegance is always a bit quiet, a bit mm -hmm. understated, but always, um, always presenting itself in a beautiful and attractive light. That's a very Beau Brummel type statement. You know, oh. the, the <laughs> statement is understatement. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. You know, a lot of people think elegant is, you know, wearing like the gold dress to the Grammys or something, but you know, it really isn't. Elegance is, you know, the way you sit, the way you speak, the way you help other people, the way you um, capture the attention of others when you walk into a room. All of those things are are signs of elegance. So let's let's flip into your business. Yes, um, and and some of the legalities. Um, you have an eponymous line. You named your brand after yourself. What what went into that process, and have there been any challenges to date as a result? Yeah, that that's it's funny. I did not want to name my brand my own name. I thought it sounded silly. Okay. You know, at first I thought, oh my gosh, that's like. It's too hard for people to say. And then, do you remember um, the brand Charavari? You might be too young. No, I do. You do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought it sounded too much like Charavari, which it does. But, um, but actually, I, I just suddenly went with it. And I had a store called Palmer Trading Company on mm -hmm. Sullivan Street. And one day I said, you know, let's just give this a shot. Let's um, take the Palmer Trading Company off of the window and put my name up. And, you know, let's see what happens. And um, it has resonated. It's, it's, it's been great because it feels more personal. From a legal aspect, of course, it's important to um, 
maintain protection of that name. Right. So um, now that I'm expanding into other countries, I have to make sure that I'm protected uh, from a trademark perspective. Which is your legal counsel. Of course, sure thanks of. to you. <laughs> and and um, and then, you know, definitely in doing any kind of a business deal, I have to consult you with whatever I'm doing. If I'm going into Japan with something in particular and working with somebody in Japan, um, they're... Uh, legal structure may be different than the U.S. legal structure, so it's it's territory that's way beyond my means. So I rely on you to guide me through that. Thank yeah. goodness. Yeah. Um, but it's um, it's it's great. I'm really I'm really glad that I have kept my name, and um, I want to make sure that that uh, I always maintain ownership of my name, no matter what happens with the business. Understood. Yeah, and so you know, projecting forward, that will govern how you'll look at investment and, and potential M&A transactions uh, insofar as if you want to maintain ownership, you'll have to maintain equity ownership. <laughs> I don't understand what you're talking about, to be honest. That's the kind of stuff I go to you to help me right. with. In the context of, say, selling control over your company, you will sell control over your name because your name holds the trademark and the rights to use the name. So you'll be faced with the prospect, if someone wants to buy outright control of the company, um, of, of giving that up for a certain amount of money, which is, which is a difficult, you know, often Sophie-like yeah. choice. Yeah, yeah, completely. And um, well, when that happens, I will come to you to help me figure it out. <laughs> We'll drive off that bridge when we get to it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine so. But I would like there to be a way <clears throat> that when my company is sold, um, which could be in the cards, um, I would always want to have some sort of creative control and some sort of ownership of what is done with my name. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just the simple fact that my brand itself is built around social justice influence. Right. I would want to make sure that that is always at the forefront of what my um, company, my name. What your brand is out there selling. Yeah, exactly. Because the, the brand name is being used to sell under under that mission statement to, yeah. to a lot of consumers, um, which is a great point. And there are mechanisms that can be um, put into M&A documents that it would protect those rights under certain scenarios. They're often difficult for acquirers to accept, but um, shrewd acquirers who get that ethos is, is part of brand, which is part of customer appreciation and therefore sales and therefore revenues, yeah. um, can, can often accept those types of provisions. So um, Yeah, well, those are the types of people that I would want to work with exactly. to begin with. So. Exactly. And I've heard horror stories about you know, not protecting the name. So, right. Yeah, there's no shortage of, of those. You know, a designer who's disassociated from their own name, at least from a trademark perspective, which are, which are very, very sad ones. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a real inefficiency in the market and, you know, to a degree in the legal system, but we could, we could deep dive into that um, with, a, with a more scholarly legal panel perhaps at another time, <laughs> the laws of style. Flipping a little bit into the business, we've, we've sort of started to, to, to get into that. With, with the model of most brands selling to large wholesale accounts somewhat broken down today, the cost of starting a brand 
have, have arguably risen because starting a brand today almost presupposes that you have some direct-to-consumer component, whether that's a, a, a robust and built-out website or your own brick-and-mortar stores. Have you found that with your business? Do you rely on wholesale accounts still? You know, what, what, what are the challenges facing uh, an emerging menswear brand today in the business of fashion? Yeah. So although my brand started about three years ago, there has been such tremendous change in the way retail has developed. So I think that right now the most important thing for a new brand to do is put a lot of money and effort into online back-end development and marketing. I think that most serious investors are going to look at that before anything else. So gone are the days of, you know, you have a great looking brand and you've got a, a great um, concept and, you know, it, it looks good. It's very much about how many people can you reach and how um, aware are you or are you partnering with somebody who knows about the back end of um, Internet workings right. through the brand? How, how much, you know, for our listeners who may not know the back end as well as... Uh you know, you as, uh, as both a retailer and a designer do. What are some of those elements and components that are important that the consumer doesn't often see? Yeah, <clears throat> well, a lot of it is analytics. So it's a lot of um, online analytics based on your customer demographic, who is most interested in looking at your brand, how easy is it for you to get a lot of people to your website to learn more about your brand, um, there's also online marketing positioning that is very important. Right. Um, and a lot of it isn't just banner ads. A lot of it is people writing s stories about you in their blogs or, or whatever. A lot of this is very new to me, to be honest, because I came up uh, building my brand in a time where I had a retail store and then an online store. So I kind of the old-fashioned way. And it, yeah. in today's climate, the old-fashioned way. So... In a lot of ways, I'm still getting up to speed with that, and I'm fortunate in that I've had recognition for my brand through my wholesale accounts, which I, I always plan to keep my wholesale accounts because the relationship with them is vital to allowing people to see the brand in the right context, to learn about the brand, and to you know try the clothes on and, and really get to know it. So. Yeah. So um, plus offloading quite a bit of the risk financially. Yeah, they're, they're buying your inventory. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, thank goodness the online world is also a great way to unload inventory because um, you know the, if I definitely will be doing some sort of item that isn't going to be a top seller, so yeah. I'll have some extra stock on that, no yeah. doubt. Yeah. But um, as long as I can put it on sale online, I'll be in a good position. Excellent. Excellent. You know, uh, you highlight one of the challenges for, for many startups, but in the fashion industry in particular, uh, menswear, womenswear, accessories. It's not enough just to be a competent and capable designer and creative person who can market the brand. There are obviously massive business elements to these businesses, which are very, very sophisticated, very high level. And yet the training that one tends to get coming out of 
an art school or a fashion design program doesn't necessarily educate someone who would be an entrepreneur in the space um, on those elements. How have you dealt with that? Who have you hired internally or consulted with internally to handle those more business elements that are present in your company? I've made an effort to work with people who are more experienced than I am. So if I'm going to be doing a fashion show, for example, or launching a campaign, for example, I make sure I work with, um, for example, I, right now I work with, an org, with a marketing team called Standard Black. Right. And they, uh, they also work with very top-level designers and you know, large companies. So I gain knowledge through their experience and they're able to help guide me in a way and then i also work with people like you as my lawyer who is working with you know much larger companies than myself and you're able to guide me in a direction that i otherwise wouldn't know what to do so mm -hmm. um i also with my brand um take on interns and i i always tell anyone who's in school or looking to go into the fashion business an internship is the best thing you can ever do because I find time and time again that when the interns get out of school, there's so much they don't know. You know, they're still being taught that, you know, they, they think they're going to be painting at an easel for, for the rest of their design <laughs> career. And it's like, you know, that isn't how it is. Right. So, um, gain, getting an internship, you get firsthand experience on how important it is to, be business savvy yeah. as as much as it is important to be creative. So um, I think internships are extremely important. You designed for a period of time at Valer, which um, had a cycling um, yes. element. Uh, yeah. And, and I don't know if you recall last year the sale of the brand Rafa. Um, which okay. was done at a very high multiple relative to its revenues. Um, what do you think about that segment? Or, or perhaps more specifically, any brand proposition that is very, very narrow and niche, but very, very high on the specifics required by design in that area and very well regarded by purists in that space? Yeah, yeah. I think actually that's kind of the... Future. I got my coffee at Rafa this morning, actually. I love their coffee. It's right around the corner from where I live. Not to plug Rafa. You have to take that out. <laughs> I'm not getting paid by Rafa. Keeps you pedaling. <laughs> um, another thing I tell designers who are just starting their business is it's not always the most practical to come up with a complete collection. It's very much about coming up with one good thing. And I think what's great about Rafa is, you know, they've got one good direction, cycling. And it's very niche. And as long as you can be the best at one thing, I think you'll always be recognized financially and, um, you know, by the praise of the public. So we're just coming off New York Fashion Week men's. You had a very successful show. I was there. Thank you Thank very you. much for the Thank invitation. you for coming. Um, or, or I'll really say two shows. Because you shrewdly, I thought, had uh, a very active presentation um, for your collaboration with Hummel, uh, which was followed by a more traditional runway show of your line. Um, so congrats on that. Thank you. Um, 
In terms of the viability of New York Fashion Week men's and the necessity for brands to show or not, um, there's been a lot of press. And I'm just curious, you know, having had a successful show recently, how you feel that's moved the needle or is moving the needle in sales meetings um, and if it's still something in the future that will be present in the fashion industry in New York. Yeah, I think that there are definitely other ways to present a collection and to get a strong reaction. And, you know, I, I'll be the first to say that New York Fashion Week uh, needs a lot of work. It's not the... It's not the go-to place now for the world. And, um, you know, it, it once was. And I still think there's great opportunity for New York to be the place for men's fashion. I mean, you see, on the street, you see people looking terrific right. every day. And all, you know, and, and Manhattan alone has so many different facets of fashion. There's so many different looks. But, um, yeah, New York, New York Fashion Week for me... <clears throat> As a New Yorker, I do love presenting here. And then um, working with the CFDA is great because they're so organized and they've got such a, you know, a terrific uh, format for presenting. Right. Um, I also love the press that it garnishes. So that's, that's really the main, the main reason I do the fashion show. It's, it's, um, it's the, the press that it garnishes that can really relate the brand to so many other people who don't really know about it. And then also, it's the perfect way for me to really tell the story in kind of a theatrical way of yeah. what the collection is about. So if I, if I wasn't doing a show like that, which I, I feel like is, you know, it's like, a, it's like theater. The shows that I do are very Absolutely. much like theatrical. Yeah. Um, if I wasn't doing a show, I'd be doing a movie or something something um, else that would in, engage uh, people romantically and uh, emotionally so that they can really connect with the, yeah. the stuff that I'm doing. Yeah, I think Rag and Bone, the, the last three seasons, has, has done a movie in lieu of a show or okay. presentation. Um, and that's certainly a viable uh, method, and, and you know it lasts, although most shows are shot by thousands of cameras, both video and, and you know, static yeah. images. So, you know, you get that capture. You had a great storyline with the Hummel collab um, as well with kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the elements of teamwork. There was kind of a coach figure there who was directing the athletes and, you know, it was very engaging and showed the clothes to great effect, I thought. Um, but it is a, um, you know, it, it is, conundrum's not the right word, but it is a pickle. <laughs> Mm -hmm. let's, let's go to food. <laughs> uh, it, it's a pickle in that New York Fashion Week men's, I think, will always struggle in the minds of many unless you have the big brands also using that platform to show. And we didn't see Ralph. We didn't yeah. see Tommy. We didn't see anything by Brooks Brothers. I'm not aware. Um, you know, and those are, those are major U.S. houses. Um, yeah. that, that could help support and, and bring their gravity and the fact that editors from overseas, you know, do kind of need to see what they're putting out there, Completely. Um, not completely. to put the onus on them because they obviously, um, you know, have their own budgets. And I think they show men's and women's concurrently, which has been the traditional model. Yeah. But you know, that's one element that, um, that, that could help to to maybe up the the profile of New York Fashion Week men's, but I do think um, 
that it does need to be on the calendar. It is a relevant voice. It's never going to be pity. It's never going to be Paris. Um, but it will always have its unique perspective because I think men in New York have a unique style perspective, which um, you know the rest of the world doesn't. Yeah. See, I think it could be pity, or it could be Paris. Interesting. You know, if it if it had the right energy to it, I I, I do think that there's there are some cool things about New York Fashion Week that aren't necessarily recognized like I, I will say that I think New York Fashion Week has an edge that we don't see out of Europe you know there's the the, the, sure. the gender fluid thing the mm-hmm. race awareness thing all of this kind of stuff is really um, powerful and we only really see it coming out of New York in such a strong way yeah. so um, I, I think that there's a way that this city could really offer the platform that that uh, Paris does. I, re- I really think that if, if we had enough people involved and enough big names of, involved, um, you know, it's such a great city and it still is, you know, the business fashion capital of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this is the place where it should, it should happen. But even, even, even saying that, I, I know that we're not there yet. And for my own brand, I consider showing elsewhere besides New York for future seasons. For that reason, it's a great perspective, though. I mean, your your Brown Power show. I mean, that elicited some some surprising reactions. You know, obviously, with the current administration, um, it was it was a very timely voice, coupled with uh, you know a capable showing of your line. But maybe maybe speak to to some of the impressions that you got back from the press and from your customers um, after that show, and you know whether those are lasting. Or not? Yeah, um, you know the anything, any negative feedback that I've received from press or from uh, you know people contacting me and my company has um, either been dismissed or fueled the next collection. So um, I don't necessarily think of myself as like a uh, activist in fashion as much as I really regard our brand as just kind of a a true brand, like, you know, we're truists. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, the work we do is reflective of what's already out in the environment. And there is a political element for sure in the environment. And um, I mean, each of us wakes up today, whether we realize it or not, we are faced with politics. You know, whether we turn on the TV, it is just what is going on. So it's um, it's impossible and it's kind of stupid to be numb to it or to ignore it. Maybe maybe negligent from the perspective of a designer who the element of truism in your brand is to is to speak those truths through the clothes. It's actually true. You know, not 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 everybody. um feels obligated to do it or it's not an obligation really you know i'm 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 not in politics i'm in clothing so i make clothes and that's my expertise and um you know the truth of the matter is as a designer i have very little time or even uh, money to be giving to a lot of the causes that Mm -hmm. i believe in so um one thing that i can do is use the platform that i have uh, that reaches a lot of people, reaches the public, connects with people um, to share my own philosophy of kindness. 
So, um, I mean, there were, there are things like the, in this last show I did the Maxine Waters tea, which I love, I love dearly. And I got, we got a lot of kind of negative, uh, feedback about that, you know, a lot of, you know, hate mail, so to speak. And, um, that's the kind of thing that it really reaffirms the necessity for us to kind of, us meaning me and my brand, to include um, a voice of what I consider to be reason in our presentation. Interesting. You know, I, I think there are commentators who would, who would call fashion politics, you know, um, maybe less of a... Uh, galvanizing, you know, method for social change and more as a, as a trend, right? People just jumping on the trend. How do you answer that? Do you feel by virtue of being an independent brand and and people knowing you're an independent brand, um, you're, you're above that sort of potential critique? Um, and what do you think about larger brands, you know, a Zara, an H and M, a kind of jumping into that fray and, and, and doing things that, arguably are positive and social good, do you view that with a wary eye that it is purely for the customer? Excellent question. So fashion ultimately is um, judgment in comparison to something else. So from a, from a trend perspective, the social awareness thing can often be a little corny. You know, and not and not necessarily cool. Right. So um, it's really easy to see some of these brands doing stuff that doesn't doesn't really look you know awesome or cool. But I truly believe that as long as there's sincerity behind it and it's not riding a trend, or I mean basically riding a trend. I think as long as there's sincerity behind it and it comes from a good place, then it's great. We can't be too critical of of fashion's influence because it is influential and it does speak for what's going on. Um, so if you see Zara, you know, doing something that promotes social kindness, then, you know, more power to them. It's great. It's yeah. good to have that element out in the world. So for those of you not watching the YouTube version of this compelling conversation. Oh, you have to watch the YouTube version. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you have to see Doug's face. It's got a great face. You can find that on uh, hballp.com slash blog. Um, but uh, I always close with uh, four questions based on what my guest is wearing. Um, so I'll start with the who. Who, <laughs> Willie, are you wearing? Okay, that's an awesome question. I'm wearing um, vintage Carhartt pants that I've had for about 12 years. My favorite pants because of the color and the fit. Um, Hummel socks, Timberland boots, and a Tupac Shakur t-shirt that I found at a thrift store that was already embellished with Ooh, uh, some of this got, stuff. Uh, was that that bead, uh, what was that thing that was on? Um, Bedazzle? Bedazzle. Yeah, yes, I think it's, it's bedazzle. Bedazzle, bedazzle, actually. It's really beautifully done. Are the Hummel socks part of the collab, or were those independently purchased? These were independently purchased before I met Hummel. I was a big fan of like the Hummel brand from a visual perspective, yeah. even because I don't play soccer myself. But um, I checked them out, and then 
as I got to know them, I realized that they have this amazing kind of, it's a, it's their karma program where they do all of this amazing kind of social work. And um, they were the first to sponsor the Afghan women's soccer team, which is crazy. Excellent. Yeah, they, they invented the hijab for women to play soccer. Wow. Even though Nike took the credit, Hummel. Hummel's actually also a very humble company, but they've done a lot of, in the World Cup, they did some gay rights activism okay. um, outside of Russia because they, they couldn't really do it inside Russia because yeah, they kill you if you're gay there. Up and, right. <laughs> but back to what I'm wearing, uh, I'm, I'm wearing all of this, but I do have to mention I'm, I'm carrying my 45 millimeter, I mean 45 centimeter Birkin bag that um, is a new acquisition. Oh, you can bring that into the shot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll make his public debut. This was a birthday gift from my husband, and um, I like the fact that I'm... I love that lock. Yeah. Uh, I look like a construction worker, but I'm carrying this, like, you know, $30,000. tool bag that's worth more than the tool <laughs> yeah. bag, for sure. <laughs> well, so the second question is, of course, what? But you, being a diligent uh, descriptor, you've, you've, you've laid out sort of what you have on. Um, you also have quite a few accessories on. Maybe you can just uh, lay those out for us. Yeah, I, um, I'm not really a believer in uh, layering on accessories unless each thing has a significant meaning. So um, I've got a lot of uh, crucifix <laughs> ornamentation around my neck that's gathered over the years. One of them I've had on since I was about 11. But um, I come from a religious background and... I do have a lot of religious beliefs, and um, I like to carry that with me. Hail for Mary, full of grace. All I right, was, I was all raised right. Catholic as well. <laughs> and then I've got my, my religious tattoos that always stay with me, so I'm protected from all angles. Um, but I, I like to wear gold and silver mixed. Interesting. And then I've got on, you know, what is still the classic gentleman's piece, the Rolex watch. There you go. And yeah, uh, the, the silver band. Do yeah. you find it's challenging to mix gold and silver, or do you do it so regularly that you're not faced with the problem that I sometimes have as the wearer of very few accessories? That if, for instance, my belt buckle is gold, I feel like I can't wear a silver watch. Yeah. I honestly think those days are over. I think that and, I, that, and and that I'm a control freak. It could be that. I mean, well, you know, maybe for you, it does need to match, and maybe for you, if you mixed it up because of that reason, it would look terrible. Yeah. You know, because you wouldn't feel comfortable in it. Precisely. But um, you know, I think that uh, there's no longer like brown belt, brown shoe type of thing. I think yeah. that rules out. It's all about how you wear it. it really is. Well, the next question is when, which is a seasonal one. I don't think the Tupac shirt is is of any particular season. Um, so we'll move right on to the why. Why <laughs> are you wearing this particular dashing ensemble today? Well, when I get dressed, I'm always dressing for the day. So sometimes I actually, you know, in New York City and anywhere, I guess, in the work that I do, you go through so many transitions through the day. So I'll be doing a podcast with you, and then I'm going to be moving inventory from one spot to another, and then later I have kind of a fancy business meeting. So um, I like to cover all angles. Right. And uh, comfort always comes first. Right. Um, normally, if I have a, a more serious business-related thing, I'll, I'll have a sport jacket on. Mm -hmm. um, 
because to, today it's about 95 degrees outside, so I can I, understand why there's no sports exactly, out. exactly. And um, I don't wear shorts. I told myself that after turning 50, I would no longer wear shorts, and I've held true to that. Shorts are only for the gym, for the beach, or for the house. Does it bother you that I showed up to your menswear show wearing a suit, but a short suit? I thought you looked fantastic. I didn't even realize you had shorts on until I looked down. <laughs> I'm, I'm really close to 50, however. Yeah, well, you'll see. You'll, when, you, when you hit 50, yeah. you know, you'll, Chick- you'll make that likes. decision. Okay. But uh, no, for now, you look great. You look great. No, uh, it all depends on the person, too. For me, it's like shorts are, even though I do have fantastic legs, I will say, they remain unrevealed until just the right moment. Very good. All right. Well, awesome. That is a wrap. Cool. Thank you so much for coming in. It's such a pleasure to be here. I love it. For your efforts, here is a copy of The Laws of Style, the book. (gasps) Yes. Listeners, you too can get your own copies on Amazon. Just type in The Laws of Style, Sartorial Excellence for the Professional Gentleman, and or my name, Douglas Hand, and it should come right up there for you. Um, and don't forget to follow me on at Hand of the Law on both Instagram and Twitter. Willie, any plugs from you for social media following or other uh, expressions of... Your hmm. Well, media presence. Other than my website, <laughs> where you can purchase some really great clothes, willyshavaria.com, um, I would like to plug the website Raices, R A I C E S dot org. It's the organization in Texas right now that's uh, helping the kids separated at the border from their parents. So thank you very much for you that. Know, a lot, a lot of us are thinking, you know, what can we do? Well, this is something that's, that you can do. That's so easy. It can cost you, you know, five bucks, a dollar, whatever you got just to help, um, these lawyers put, um, put families back together. So, uh, that's a, that's a good one to plug. It definitely is lawyers to the rescue. Once again, thanks. Will. Cool. All right. Thanks guys. See you next time, everybody. Bye now. been listening to the laws of style with douglas hand for more information go to our website at www.hballp.com and you can also follow us on instagram and twitter at at hand of the law thank you for tuning in and stay stylish